talk about what is called the three principles of the path. Three essential elements of spiritual practice, and they are renunciation or letting go, compassion and kindness, and insight into the nature of things, into the insubstantial or perhaps better non-graspable nature of all phenomena that make up life. There's one aspect of life we need to look at quite closely. The fact that we're often quite unhappy, suffering people. with plenty of conflicts, anxieties, worries, sorrows, disappointments. The fact that we suffer, maybe not every time, but often, when we don't have and don't get what we like. The fact that we suffer when we do have, when we're together with what we dislike. The fact that so easily we can get lost in mind states that lack serenity, balance, and joy, and are without genuine inner freedom. And if the suffering within isn't obvious to us, it must strike us in the outside world. I read again recently, it's still, or, or maybe even more than before, tens of thousands who die of hunger every day. I think it's in the 30,000, 40,000 people every day, and it's mostly children. While in the West, we're throwing away approximately 20% of the food, according to statistics. In Asia alone, there are 10 million children slaves. And there's poverty and violence in our countries, in our cities, in our families. And I think it's good to understand that most of this suffering is not happening randomly by coincidence. It's not falling out of the blue sky. It's the expression of people's minds. It's the manifestation of our own minds. How is that possible? There are three elements or properties at work in our minds and in our hearts which seem to be at the root of all the trouble. It's ignorance, the not understanding of reality, of life, of ourselves. It's desire, craving, attachment on one hand, and hatred, aversion, anger on the other hand, which are the dynamics or the manifestations or consequences of that ignorant mind. So if these three elements or qualities, ignorance, attachment, aversion, cause most of the trouble in the world within and without. We must obviously start getting in touch with that which is free of them, the beauty and the goodness of the mind which is radically different, and that is renunciation or letting go, compassion and kindness, and insight into the empty or non-graspable nature of things.
the three principles of the path. A mind without craving and wanting and holding on at any time is detached, lets go, is renunciation. You could say it's the generosity and the open-heartedness of the mind. A mind without aversion, without hatred, without cruelty, is the gentle acceptance, the kindness, and the compassion of the mind. A mind free from ignorance, free from darkness and bewilderment, is clear, is insightful, understands the nature of things. It's the wisdom and the freedom of mind. So let's look first at renunciation or, or detachment or letting go. It's not, not very fashionable nowadays, the word renunciation. It certainly has to do with not being caught up in possessions and all kinds of objects and situations and people. It has a lot to do with simplicity in our life. We're keeping our minds unburdened and unencumbered by too many things that we don't really need anyway. That kind of renunciation arises out of the understanding out of the knowing from experience that nothing, no object, no possession, also here in retreat or in meditation, no other thought and no other daydream or emotion is going to make us truly or lastingly happy. Great Sufi mystic Rumi asks, how long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones. Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, never are airborne. Very often in our life we rush too quickly to assume or to hope or to believe that one more thing or one more experience or right person, or even right meditation, is somehow going to do it for us. Often we fail to look far enough ahead of that experience to see what will come next, what will come after we got this one. A youngster once came to see the Holy Philippus and told him that his parents had given him permission permission to go to business school and how he was going to be a brilliant student, doing very great. And Philippus was known to be a man of few words. And he turned to the youngster and said, And then? And then I'll run a big company, I'll become famous, the youngster went on. And then, asked the saint, then I'll be rich, own a big house and a family and have lots of fun. Life will be really good. Quietly, the holy man asked, and then? And after some reflection, the youngster said hesitantly, I guess then at some point I'll get old and eventually I'll die. And the holy Philippus raised his voice once more and said, and then? So, of course, we need education. 
need good jobs and so forth. And yet if we would ask ourselves the question more often, you know, before we get into big or small projects, often we could save ourselves a lot of trouble and instead relax and be happy right away rather than go through the whole thing in the hope we get happy. Be happy right now. Renunciation comes more naturally when we understand that there is a deeper peace and a greater freedom in letting go than in grasping and getting and owning. That's perhaps when we will begin to feel like Rumi when he said, we are on our way to heaven. Who cares for sightseeing now? Though it's about not holding on to things, to people, to status or to role or situations. I think we have to be clear. Renunciation is a state of mind. It's an inner attitude. And there could be a queen or a king or a billionaire with true renunciation. And there could also be an ascetic, a nun or a monk without. It's another story. A sadhu or an ascetic came to the court of a king and asked for alms, which he received plentifully. After the meal, he stored his bundle of possessions in the corner of the palace and proceeded to walk through the palace gardens with the king. The ascetic lectured the king on the futility of worldly possessions and was untiring in praising the blessings of renunciation. The king was truly touched and said, Your words have moved me deeply. From this day on, I will renounce the world. And looking up, he added, And see how my decision is getting support. My palace is in flames. Whereupon the ascetic jumped up and ran towards the palace, screaming, My bundle, my bundle. Renunciation comes naturally whenever we are in touch with the preciousness and the uniqueness of our situation as human beings. We all have that precious situation. Being intelligent, being healthy enough to be able to practice, be interested in spiritual practice, be interested in inner freedom, and having the time to practice We all have the time to practice. That's why we could get here. And we have the Dharma available to us. Some time ago, we would get a letter from Ukraine, or or we hear sometimes also from Romania, places like this that um, they have no book, no Dharma books, they have not much information, no teachers, no courses. Once they can get on the internet, they're much better off, but often they can't. So we're really fortunate, and we sometimes forget that it's quite uh, special, quite unusual to have all the conditions come together to really end up practicing. So renunciation is an attitude of the mind, and 
very often, as we can see in meditation, it's also a question of willingness. Sometimes we say or we think, I just cannot let go of this one, whatever it is. And that might be true. But then let's look at how much it is that we sometimes don't want to let go. Often it's to be willing to let go of our thoughts, to let go of our stories, to let go of our inner dialogues and dramas. Sometimes we somehow make ourselves believe they're more important than just be with their experience, maybe because it's a little more entertaining. To truly be willing not to keep on dwelling, indulging endlessly in our feelings, emotions, and mind states. To allow them to be felt when they arise, that's important. Also to allow them to pass, to dissolve, to disappear too when their time is gone. And it's really not so much to work out or to analyze or to figure out. They come on their own. They go on their own. It's like easy come, easy go. Sometimes not so easy come and not so easy go, but they still do it by themselves if we let them. And that letting go, that attitude can be trained. This is by Achan Sumedho, and he talks from his life as a monk and a meditator back in his early years as a monk in Thailand. And we can perhaps translate this, see if we can apply it to our own life. He says, The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your practice down to just two words, letting go rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidhamma and learn Pali and Sanskrit, get ordinations, write books on, and become an authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> just let go. Let go. He goes on saying, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I, I'd say, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go. So we practice letting go over and over again in meditation throughout the day. Each time we let go of an unhelpful thought involvement, it's an act of renunciation. Each time we turn our attention away from an object of desire or aversion, that creates difficulties from us. It's an art of renunciation, and it's powerful and liberating. To the degree that there is renunciation, letting go, to that degree our mind is at peace and is free from the heat of craving and clinging. 
And to that degree, our heart will open in generosity and abundance. One last point on renunciation. I think it's directly linked to commitment, our commitment to practice, to compassion, to freedom. And we can ask ourselves, is Dharma practice just another one of my hobbies next to, I don't know, tennis or golf or watching TV or whatever? Or is it a central concern of my life? And if so, what am I willing to give? Am I willing to give myself completely? So renunciation is the necessary prerequisite for devotion. Devotion to the Dharma, devotion to love, kindness, compassion. Devotion to the possibility of freedom. In a way, it's a lot to do with the sense of urgency. A young seeker came to see the guru and asked, Please, Master, show me God. I'd like to know God. The teacher grabbed the young man, dragged him to the river, forced his head under water until he almost drowned. And when he came back up, gasping for air, the teacher asked, What did you want most when you were underwater? Air, said the young man. Okay, said the guru. Now you go back where you came from and only return to see me when you wish to see God it is as strong as you wish to get air when you're held underwater. I guess a little less intensity is okay, too. <laughs> but sometimes there's that sense of urgency that is very important also. The second principle, kindness and compassion, is similar to the first, but it's the mind free of aversion, of hatred, of cruelty. Here's an interesting statement by Krishnamurti, who is known and famous as being a wisdom teacher. He said, Of all the qualifications, love is the most important. For if it is strong enough in someone, it forces them to acquire all the rest. And all the rest without it, without love, would never be sufficient. It's this saying that without kindness and compassion, this whole path is meaningless, is not sufficient. We should certainly consider this point. Renunciation arises from understanding the suffering that comes from clinging and wanting, that comes from seeing that none of it will provide real happiness and serenity, and it comes from recognizing the peace, the release of letting go. And similarly, acceptance, kindness, and compassion can arise from seeing the trouble that comes from having to fight, to control, to manipulate what we dislike be it objects, situations, or people. And it arises from recognizing the joy that comes from an open, generous, and loving heart. 
Once we start opening to this, we begin to become aware of the connectedness, the interconnectedness of all of life. And as our insight deepens, we realize that the separation of life into different, seemingly distinct, distinctly separate entities or selves is really purely mind-made. It's perception who gives us this impression, which is a wrong impression. Life is one big connected event. And I try to illustrate this. For example, in what we eat, we depend on a long, practically beginningless chain of people, of work, of activities, such as farmers, if that's where we want to start, or manufacturers of tractors and plows and other farming machineries that farmers need. And for tractors and plows, I think they need metal, so we depend on miners who uh, go into mines and, you know, get the ore and all what it takes. I don't even know what it means and what it takes, except that it's hard work. Then takes truck drivers, ship crews, workers in food processing plants, salespeople in shops, some cooks, those who do the shopping, those who do the cooking, and so forth. And then the bell rings, and there it is. <laughs> and it looks quite, in a way, doesn't it look quite as if it were standing or sitting there quite independently? Porridge, period. It's in that one place, completely cut off everything else when we see it, especially when we like it. When we're born, we depend on parents and relatives and teachers and doctors and so on for our survival, for our well-being, for our health, for our education, to learn to walk, talk, read, write, and the millions of other things one needs to know in this world. We totally, 100% depend on air to breathe, on water to drink, on food to eat. And I could go on for hours just pointing out the connectedness in so many ways. Life in itself is a complex interwoven network of events and beings. We are a part of an interwoven network. So we must see here very clearly two facts. One is to conceive of isolated, independent entities or selves anywhere within or outside is absurd because it's all empty of that way of existing separately, independently or or substantially. At the same time, secondly, all things are intimately interconnected and interwoven. This includes all of us, all living beings. Not separate, but interwoven. That's also the meaning of of non-self or non-self-existence. It's not that there's nobody there, but there's no independently existing somebody back up here or here or, or anywhere. And when we dislike or hurt or destroy others or the environment also. It's not just like 
members of the same family destroying each other. But in a way, it's much worse. It's almost like one's hand hating and destroying one's legs just because they don't do what we want them to do or because they hurt or because they get tired or get old. It would be absurd. But here we, we remember, we know it's the same life. As soon as it's a little further, we can easily forget. The further away it is, the easier we forget. So kindness is not even just a question of religion or of ethics or of the heart even. In a way, it's the most obvious and most even logical, most meaningful way of being. In fact, when we fall out of love, that's when life is at its worst. As Dostoevsky's father, Zosima, tells his monks, Hell is the suffering of those unable to love. If you look for a practice that is fun, this is it. I think the more we're kind, the more we love, the more joy there is, and the better we know how to do it. So it's a practice too, and we must exercise it can practice it towards things, situations, experience in the form of acceptance, of patience, as allowing. And that's what we can do here in the Vipassana part. And we practice kindness towards beings, including ourselves, in the metta meditation, but also as an attitude in which we meet others, we relate to others, or by contemplating the positive qualities of beings, including the ones of ourselves, as we've done for a few minutes at the end of the sitting in the evening, the night. We practice by being generous, open-hearted again to others, to ourselves. To use every moment, every situation, every person, and not to limit ourselves, not to, to... Limit our love. We do that sometimes. In one song, Whitney Houston sings, I'm saving all my love for you. We sometimes see love or kindness as some kind of quantity whereby saving it, we get more. It's really by spending it that we get more. The more we spend, the more there is. Such a great power at our disposition. And it will have powerful effects on ourselves and on others. From a text, it says, Even if one were to give away food cooked in 300 pots every day three times, and that's something that has already tremendous virtuous power, this would not equal the merits of one moment of kindness. Says the Ratnavali. The same can be said about compassion. Compassion begins to flow, to flower, when we begin to open first to our own suffering, courageously, without too much self-pity, with gentleness. Atisha said, the one who seriously wants to dispel the misery of others is an excellent person. Because in the stream of one's own being, one has understood the nature 
of suffering. When we deeply understand and touch our inner being, our pain and our joy, then connectedness and compassion can arise. And in moments when we deeply care for one another, we sometimes glimpse an essential quality of our being, which is our basic oneness, where it's not so much me and you or us and them. It's more all us or it simply all is. And coming from this understanding, we don't need to push push ourselves so much to help others or to be of service or to care. It's not out of should. It's not out of guilt or duty that we reach out. Rather, we do what we can as a natural response to what is needed. Then perhaps we might feel like Etty Hillesom, this young woman deported and killed in a concentration camp, when she said, One would like to be a bandage, a plaster, on many a wound. And compassion, too, is a great force, a powerful practice, affecting others as well as ourselves. As is said in a text, when there is one virtue present, it is like having all the qualities of the Buddhas in the palm of one's hand, which is this Virtue is great compassion. Realizing and living the connectedness with others, sensing the oneness of beings, it's also very freeing. I think it's a key or it's a source for the understanding of the non-self-existent nature of things or the non-substantial, non-graspable nature of all phenomena, the third of these principles of the path. As Rumi puts it, instead of being so bound up with everyone, be everyone. When you become that many, you're nothing, you're empty. So the third principle of the path isn't that far away from the other two. In fact, It's just the other side of the same coin. It's actually a three-sided coin. I don't know if they (laughs) exist. Seeing clearly the interconnectedness of all things, then the non-graspable, insubstantial, empty nature becomes more apparent. In fact, the interconnectedness of all things, all beings, all events is pointing directly at their empty or insubstantial nature. It's an illustration, and I never know if it makes sense to anyone but me, but I'll try. If anywhere in the universe, inside of ourselves or out there, a substantial, independent, fixed entity would exist as part of that universe, which I really think is unthinkable. Something, a piece that would not be moving with everything together. 
then the whole universe wouldn't move, wouldn't be able to move. It would be stopped in its track because that fixed entity would block the whole thing. We have this uh, clock tower in Bern where I live, and um, it's a, a huge clockwork that, uh, you know, with calendars and little bears that go around and all kinds of things that I don't even get, you know, in the rooster who comes out. <laughs> And it's a very complex machinery with many, many cogwheels and, and belts and things that drive each other in a complex interdependence. Now imagine a hard stone or pebble or, or something would be thrown into this machinery at any point. The whole thing would stop. It wouldn't just be that cogwheel that would stop. If one in one place it is stopped, the whole thing will go block. In the same way, the whole interconnected universe of all life would be stopped, fixed, and frozen, which, of course, very obviously, it isn't. It's not static in any way. In fact, it's the opposite. Everything in this life is connected, is interdependent. Everything moves, vibrates, changes, turns from one thing in another. And we can see that more and more clearly in meditation. That's why, in a way, it doesn't so much matter what your experience is. But as you see experience coming and going, coming and going, all by itself, changing, 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 you start to get a sense of that interconnectedness. Thus, it cannot be solid. And that means none of these parts in, can in any way be kept, held onto, and taken home. You think of the fact that a bean, you know, these green soya beans that are... Um, hard and not tasty at all. They can turn into a sprout within three days with the right, under the right conditions, whereby the bean completely disappears and a long whitish thing, a sprout, is there which is edible. It shows how little substantiality there is to be found even in matter. You think that a caterpillar can turn into a butterfly or Remember yesterday? Remember all those moments you had yesterday? Probably not. Where, you know, or, or yesterday's lunch, or today's lunch, where has it gone? If it were in any way solid, it would have to be stashed somewhere back there, <laughs> you know, with Caesar and, and whoever was there, Napoleon. The whole show, precisely because it's all interconnected, is utterly empty of any kind of graspable real substance. Sparkling appearance really looks real, and yet empty of true substance. Appearance that has power to make us suffer or happy can leave us in bondage or there can be freedom. And yet, there's no reality to it 
whatsoever. My Tibetan teacher, Geshe Rap Nuan, said, when you go for a walk outside, every tree, every branch, every leaf shouts at you, empty, empty. It was so obvious to him, I always wished I could see it so clearly. Never, they never shouted at me. As the Buddha said, just as a, magi- a magician produces visible objects, such as horses, elephants, and other things, which though they appear, do not truly exist, so should you experience the whole of reality. Nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on, and also nothing to hate and to fight. To the extent the mind opens to that truth, to the extent the mind understands this reality and lets go, to that extent it is free. So we're back to renunciation, to letting go. Seeing the empty nature, we stop grasping. We can let go and we can let be. We see, understand, let go and are free. And that's not once and for all. That's over and over again we do that in our sittings, in our walkings, and throughout our life. And in that, even though things are empty, we meet them with kindness, with love, with compassion. So we see breaths, sensations, emotions, and thoughts that come and go, sometimes easy, sometimes difficult or painful, and yet quite insubstantial. So it's not to look somewhere else. You know, if I'm deep enough one day, I will see that it's impermanent and insubstantial. It's so obvious every second of the day. It's disappearing. So when we see that, it becomes easier to allow, to let go, let things be. And nothing can impinge on our freedom. So this is the practice and the living of the three principle of the path or three principle of spirituality. Renunciation or letting go, compassion and kindness, and insight into the empty, insubstantial nature. And we practice it as good as we can every moment right here. Sit for a moment. 